Mixo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of serving in and growing an ethnic church in the siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the ethnic church continue to thrive? What should an ethnic church look like today? These questions and more are what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Pedilla and myself, Elizabeth Conde-Fraser. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we discuss the connection between the gospel and social justice, addressing specific issues like immigration and community development. Elizabeth helps us understand Misión Integral as a unique contribution of the Hispanic Church and the value of this movement for the wider Iglesia. We end the episode by sharing stories about how the Hispanic Church is changing. So join us now on a conversation about justice. All right, Elizabeth, we're back again for another episode of the Mestizo Podcast. We are talking today about an issue that's very close to both of us as we've been involved in these kinds of things for a long time. Uh, we're going to be talking about justice, particularly uh, in issues of mass incarceration or the immigration, especially detention issues. And so I'm excited that we're going to get to dialogue about this subject because, uh, as I'm going to mention later in the podcast, for the research that I've seen, for instance, Barna released a research statistic earlier this year, so it's very recent, where they pointed out that for Christians in the age frame of 18 to 35, 43% of them view acts of justice as the key marker, the major marker of what it means to be a Christian. And so clearly for the younger generation, justice has become uh, a significant topic. Uh, but I think there's a big difference, right, between how the younger generation might define justice and what older generations might hear when they hear social justice or justice initiatives. What do you think about that? Do you think there's a key difference there? Well, there's definitely a key difference. The first generation may hear uh, política, right? Nos vamos a meter en la política, and política is a stop word. You know, they put on the brakes. Uh, we don't do religion and politics, and a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, what went on in our different countries of origin and so forth, where it was a, a very dangerous thing to do, but also um, the missionary theology taught us not to do that. The missionaries who came to us, they couldn't do um, politics uh, because of the uh, arrangement between our country and theirs, so they weren't allowed to do that, so they always uh, put on the brakes with that. Uh, instead of that, what they did was they did good works, their understanding of how to do missions. This is all about how to do missions. This falls within the greater rubric of missions, and that's important for us to say. Uh, their understanding of how to do missions had to do with doing good works. It had to do with evangelizing persons because if persons were evangelized, it meant that they could be better persons. We change the world one person at a time. When you come to Christ, you become a different person and your influence in the world then becomes such that uh, we can change the world, right? Yeah, there's a kind of historical evolution of two types of church. Um, in 1994, Harvey Kahn published a book called The American City and the Evangelical Church. And reflecting on his survey, he actually did a survey also of the Hispanic church as it related to that. And he says this, he observed that some Hispanic pastors and churches 
confine Christian discipleship to personal piety and the verbal proclamation of the gospel. They envision the church at war against secularizing and corrupting influences of El Mundo, uh, which can have an effect of minimizing the role of the church in society as an agent of justice, freedom of peace, freedom and peace. So it's interesting. He saw kind of the fundamentalist movement as uh, really pushing the church away or nudging the church away from considering and thinking about issues of justice. I find it interesting while that while that was happening for Protestant movements, and we have this evolving of a church on two tracks, Justo Gonzalez in his book, Mañana, he also talks about uh, the Roman Catholic Church evolving on two tracks, right? Uh, far predating the Protestant evolution. So the Protestant evolution happens in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But the Roman Catholic uh, evolution happened centuries ago. So we're talking 1500s when the Spaniards are growing their empire in the Central and South America in those nations, in those places. Uh, you have what Justo Gonzalez refers to as la Iglesia de la Hierarquía, right? The the Church of the Hierarchy. And and then you have la Iglesia del Pueblo, the, the monks who uh, I'm thinking of, uh, Bartolomé de las Casas and others who committed to serving the poor indigenous and as well as denouncing the arrival of slaves to the Americas. And so you have a kind of Roman Catholic evolution of two churches, one that's committed to and tied to ministry to the poor and service to the needy, and another that really served as a as an arm of power, as an arm of the state. And so whether that connection is always true for the Protestant evolution, I think there seems to be a kind of distinction between uh, two faces of the church. Would you say that's fair? Absolutely. And even until today, uh, they may be called different things, right? So within the Catholic Church, you have the emerging of um, Teología de la Liberación, right? Liberation Theology. And then within the Protestant Church, you have the emergence of uh, Misión Integral. Yeah. Misión Integral is an interesting phrase. Uh, I believe it comes from Orlando Costas, as best I can understand it. it. Real quick, it comes from a movement... Orlando Costas was a part of that movement. It comes from a dialogue that um, persons um, challenged themselves to have, and they came from different parts of Latin America, to have this theological dialogue about how can the church be a uh, transforming church in Latin America, talking about the Protestant church, because uh, mainly it was a mainline folk. And so the mainline church is coming in and asking these questions, and that dialogue then leads them to uh, the understanding of Misión Integral, where it's not uh, one or the other, but where they're seeking to integrate uh, the preaching of the gospel along with the social justice that's necessary in the gospel. That's very interesting. This isn't just happening in Latin America, and I think it's important to highlight this. The statistic that I noted earlier, the 18 to 35-year-olds who care that or who believe that justice is a key marker of the Christian faith, uh, that study was actually done between Barna in partnership with World Vision, and there were 25 countries involved in that study. And so this goes far beyond the U.S. context, far beyond Latin American context. It's remarkable that for this coming generation of Christians, justice is a pressing issue. Uh, it makes me think of, there's a pastor in Greece that I'm very familiar with. He talked about 
the refugee crisis in 2015 and 2015, for those that don't know, over a million refugees arrived suddenly to Greece from Middle Eastern countries because of the crises that they were experiencing there. So this huge influx of migration happened and the churches saw it as an opportunity for new ministry. But this Greek pastor that I know, he described how the church, once again, divided into two factions for how this really worked. One faction essentially did what he called a kind of vertical ministry where, yeah, sure, we're serving their needs, but we're only serving their needs as it helps us, as it relates to helping us evangelize them. So for instance, we might serve them a meal for free, but they're going to have to sit there and listen to a sermon where we're preaching the gospel if they're going to get that meal. Or yeah, we might open up a center where they can stay and sleep overnight, but they're going to have to experience a worship service while they're at the center so that they can stay that night. You know, over and over there's conditions to the service. That was one type of church that he saw. On the other end, he called it a kind of horizontal church that essentially reacted by saying, here's an opportunity to uh, do good works among our neighbors. And so they often simply did works of service. They did, you know, the same thing, shelters, food pantries, so forth and so on. But they saw that as sufficient. They didn't connect that to any kind of gospel evangelization. And so talk to me about how La Misión Integral is the, the strike through that avoids those two extremes and really brings them together in a healthy way. So that was precisely the, the issue, right? You had those two tendencies, let's call them, uh, and that they, they maintained an either-or tension between the two. And what Misión Integral is saying is, no, we need both. It's not enough just to um, take care of people's uh, outside needs, although that is very imprescindible poder hacer eso, right? And that is the first place where we have to meet people. But meeting people in that space and being in relationship with them is about being the Christ to them in that moment. But then later on, you have to name the Christ, right? You can't just let them go and not name the Christ giving them the option for understanding this Christ. And you've given them the first understanding of this Christ through the incarnational ministry that you bring to them, right? You've incarnated the love of Christ to them in this way. And by doing that, that has been your first proclamation. As persons continue to, to relate to you, este, hay una compenetración, right? <clears throat> Forgive me, and that's the only word that I'm not sure that there's a really good word for that in English. Pero hay una compenetración entre personas y el, la formación de comunidad, right? We're forming community, and that in itself is where the gospel resides because it's it's uh, the relationship piece is a spiritual uh, piece, right? And so in that piece, now. The space is uh, ready. It's mature enough that we can now talk about this other piece. And persons can talk about uh, their own religion that they've come with. Um, and we can have that dialogue of the gospel as they encounter this new space, as they uh, relate the gospel with the religion that they've come from, etc. cetera. Uh, it's a dialogue. Right? So it's looking at proclamation as dialogue. <clears throat> um, so you have both. Uh, they're saying you need to bring the two of them 
into this space, but the approach okay, changes. So it's integral. It's about wholeness. It's not enough to have one without the other. So That's it's right. that wholeness. And it's about maintaining the dignity of persons in the process because it is about relationship. So I wonder, that makes sense to me. I wonder, I wonder if we have a language problem related to this. And here's what I mean. Many Hispanic churches, uh, thinking of the, of the two types, let's think for a second of the type that is more service-oriented and more community-oriented. Let's think about those Hispanic churches that are very uh, parish-like in the sense that they're very tied to their local community, very tied to service to their local community, right? Uh, I grew up in a church that was like that in Detroit. I was born, uh, born and raised in Detroit, and while living there, I was tied to a Hispanic church that was very well connected to the Hispanic community on the southwest side of Detroit and was servicing them. And I wonder if we have a language problem in this regard. Is it possible that some of those Hispanic churches that are kind of of that second kind really are involved in what what we would call acts of social justice? Or maybe we wouldn't call it that. I don't know. Uh, but they're not really seen that way because they're not attacking the bigger system and they're not responding to the bigger system. Is it possible that there's more work going on than the young generation is really seeing? What do you think? Well, it's possible to a certain extent, but true social justice has to include the structural pieces, right? And what happens with um, the first generation church uh, is that, what look, look, what happens across the United States is that people just don't have uh, the awareness. Um, the way that we run this country is about uh, making sure that religion doesn't go there, okay? Um, it's a civil religion, and we make sure that religion doesn't go there. Religion is supposed to make good citizens, and good citizens are not supposed to be protesting. So it leaves out the prophetic dimension. But the, the fullness of the biblical legacy does not leave out the prophetic dimension. The prophets were not people praying at the altar anointing people. The prophets were always found in the courts of the king. Yeah. And we need to remember that, right? So yeah. it's about um, creating a, a, an awareness in people about what's going on. Why is it that poverty is happening here? Why is it that these things are taking place? Why is it that a, a community here can go to Guatemala and build houses but not connect with uh, Guatemalans trying to come in here? Right? What, what's the disconnect? What's happening? And it's because we don't have that awareness. Number two, it's about having the skills. How do we do advocacy? That's important. And number three, it's about having the theology that informs that and about including the fullness of our biblical legacy. Familia, it's your host, Emmanuel Padilla, with a quick reminder. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno del Mestizo podcast. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website, following the link in the show notes, or you can call 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. 
Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. That's it for now. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's just biblical legacy, but also our church history legacy. We we do ourselves a disservice when we act as if historical figures in the church, both Latino and otherwise, weren't involved in systemic things historically, right? So I think of William Wilberforce in in England challenging the system of slavery that was existing of across the trade, across the pond, if you will, right? He was challenging a system. And uh, we have the same thing with Bartolomé de las Casas in Latin America and the Dominican Republic, challenging el sistema de encomiendas for the Spanish Empire, right? And so we have figures in our history, not just in the biblical narrative, which sometimes people uh, tend to think is too far historical past, but even in what we would call more historical present, we have people in our history that reflect to us, that, that highlight for us the reality that it really is important that we not do just relief work, but that we also do the development work and that we do the work to challenge systems of oppression and injustice. Uh, I think of Justo Gonzalez in his book, Mañana, again, I realize I'm quoting it a lot, but he has a chapter in there where he highlights multiple times where figures like St. Augustine, Ignatius, and other figures from ancient church history had clear statements about the church responding to and engaging the systems of their day. And so, again, it's not just the biblical narrative that highlights the prophets, who are a clear example and an important one for us, but we also have those figures in our history that we need to look to. We do. And for those of us who come out of... um, whose history is is deeply linked with the white evangelical church in the United States. Even that um, history is deeply a part of our revival. So you take the Charles Finney revival that took place. Charles Finney was a man who didn't serve communion to people who had, who had slaves. Talk about being highly political, right? Um, it was a time when uh, seminarians in a part of Ohio decided that they were going to um, uh, create ministries where they were going to educate persons who were African-American, where they were going to walk hand in hand with them in the street when it was against the law, where they were going to visit each other's homes, uh, where they were going to go down into the South and preach against slavery. And many of them got lynched for doing so. So even that legacy is a part of that. And what we have to ask ourselves is, how is it that a church, any church, gets loses that legacy? That's how do right. we get lost, right? How do we get comfortable and lose those pieces? So we, we kind of, you can't do social justice if you don't talk sacrifice. Ay, ay, ay. You know, eso duele, mijo. But you can't do social justice and not talk about sacrifice because you do yourself an injustice in not counting the cost of going for a ministry of social justice. And you also can't do it without understanding that part of that sacrifice means perseverance. The word perseverance, I love it in Spanish, perseveración, look at all of those syllables, or longaminidad, right? Uh, the, the longevity of, of what it means to do this, that's, you know, this is not instant something that happens. So this new generation sees social media, on, is, is, is immersed in what's happening around the world, knows that we can't continue to live this world the way that we are, but 
they need resilience of faith in order to do it. Yeah. There's a couple of things that you brought up there that I think are really important and I, that I want to highlight because uh, they strike me as significant factors related to this. So number one, you're talking about the fact that many histories get buried, right? And so there's kind of an, uh, a re-education, a reorientation that needs to happen. Uh, and I wonder how the church can be involved in that, not just in, in telling those histories, but even in advocating that those, his, those histories be told uh, fairly and well, fairly might be too ridiculous, but but honestly, maybe that's the more appropriate word uh, that those histories might be told honestly. So that, that's the factor that I think is number one, and then number two, the thing that you brought up related to social media in this generation. I think many millennials and younger, so Gen Z, I'm thinking. Uh, I think for us, the historical present is so loud. Right, so the the crimes that happen in the historical present, the violence, the oppression, the injustice, you you know, use all those words. It's so loud uh, that we fail to see all the historical underpinnings that developed our historical present, and so we we react simply to what we see in front of us in social media and in other places, uh, and we don't look for what are those underpinnings, what are those undercurrents that have led us to this moment that we can also address. Because if we can address those things, we might be able to then change the things we see in the historical present. I don't know. That's, that's a thought that I've been thinking about, that it seems that those buried histories have more significance than we realize. Well, take, for example, the narrative of uh, racism, right? We've changed um, laws We've um, sought to help people to understand, you know, we, we, we've changed how we live. We can live in each other's communities now uh, through the resistance that we went through, et cetera, et cetera. But that old narrative is still present. That's right. Right. We see it coming back. So how do we change the narrative? That's going back to that root, right? How do we change the narrative? Because if we haven't changed the narrative, it continues to simply morph yeah, in its right. expression. Well, so what do we do for our, let's talk about our people, nuestra gente. What do we do about the fact that many pastors still view this as something that is not attached to the gospel, right? What, what are some ways that we can challenge our pastoral leadership, particularly for those young people who don't yet have positions of power, right? There's a power differential around this. How do we navigate the fact that we're challenging from below, if you will, right? We're asking leaders to get involved in something that they oppose, and we're doing so from a place that doesn't have a lot of power. How does the Hispanic church do this? The place of compassion is a very powerful place, okay? Story and compassion come together. <clears throat> and I think that I would say um, that the Latino church is, is changing. It's changing even the first generation because of the whole issue of immigration. The issue of immigration is changing the way that Latino pastors think about this. Latino pastors is one thing you have to say about them. They are in the community. They do visitation, <clears throat> they're present. So their forte is presence. And that presence leads them to places of compassion. They're looking at persons who están sufriendo. They're understanding what this means. They're taking in kids 
whose parents are no longer here, right? These pastors are doing this. They're helping the church to do this. And at a certain point, now they're asking no questions. And that place of asking no questions is the place where the, the second generation has to come in and say, hey, look, this is why this is happening. That's a place of, of possibility for dialogue, right? So the place of compassion is the place where we come together. And in that place of coming together and learning how to do this differently, the, first, the second generation can teach the first generation to do these, these pieces. And have I think that we bring particular um, skills to being able to do this. And what the first generation church is learning is what is going to be the role of the pastor? The role of the pastor is now changing, right? Because of presence before, we didn't um, throw pastors out there to be prophetic. Okay, the African-American church, the pastor can be prophetic <clears throat> because the pastor doesn't need to be as uh, the personalismo that we have in our culture isn't present. Now, because of the personalismo in our culture, the pastor, la Latino first generation pastor is understanding that this must be addressed. Who is going to address it? Who will be the prophetic voices? And it doesn't need to always be the pastor. What the pastor needs to do is to be able to mobilize the church in that direction, right? The pastor presides over the community of faith and the pastor is to edify those who are to move forward according to their callings. And so the pastor doesn't have to be the one who does all of this, but the pastor needs to be the one who creates a community of faith where people can come into this calling and where he can give the green light <clears throat> for persons to go forth where we have the intercessors praying for those who are going out into the community who have those skills and so forth. So it's a day for a new pastoral and a new understanding of the mission of the church. I think that's beautiful, but I, I'm going to be a little pessimistic for a second. I, uh, here's my pessimism. The, the key that I think, highlights what you're describing is that that change, the, the first generation pastor who's seeing the change related to immigration and some of the things because they're present, I, I think that's absolutely true. Those pastors who see the crisis are responding. However, here's my, pass, uh, my pessimism. There are other pastors, there are other church leaders, mission movement leaders who, for lack of a better word, have tied their boat to an anglicized church They've tied their boat to anglicized theologies and therefore are blind and too distant from their own people's crisis that they aren't ready to change. I'll give you a perfect example. I won't, I won't say uh, too many details here, uh, but I was invited to speak at a conference. I went uh, because I was a young Hispanic and they wanted to hear from young Hispanics related to theological education and what things need to change for, for missions to grow in el siglo XXI, right? And I was there at this conference. I spoke along with many other theologians, scholars who were of millennial age group or that kind of thing. And then afterwards, in the debrief related to the conference, 
um, I was told that one of the other key leaders who she spoke about how we can reach indigenous peoples without anglicizing their theology, but how we can do contextual ministry to indigenous peoples. That was her key subject. Uh, I was told during the debrief that they wouldn't invite her back because she talked too much about justice, because what she had shared was syncretistic, and because it did not reflect evangelical theology. That's what I was told. And so that's an example of what I mean when I say I'm a little pessimistic that the Hispanic church is ready to make this move because there are many Hispanic leaders who are so tied to anglicized ways of doing theology and ministry that they're, they're, not, they're not ready to hear a different message. I don't know. How do you respond to that? What do you think? Look, my husband's African-American and during the uh, movement of the civil rights movement, not every black church showed up to Washington, D.C. for the it's I true. Have a Dream speech and so forth, right? Uh, so it, you're talking about movement. You're talking about, and that's a community where there was a lot more uh, unity in terms of, you know, who they are. We have so many different cultures and different generations already within the Latino community, right? The charter community is a seventh generation community. So you're going to have that diversity, Okay. I'm, I'm not going to place my eye on those who decide to stay back. If you're a person who's moving community forward, you know that only 2% of the people around you are people who are wired for change. Okay? And you're always going to have a 10% of the people who aren't going to move from where they are. Yeah. But you have to differentiate. And the fact that you were there, you could have used that opportunity too. <laughs> <clears throat> to have challenged why they think that way. Oh, I, I did. I did. I just, I, I ended the story there to highlight where they were in their position. Yes. So they're going to invite us to come along. And at some, at some point, we're going to be coming out theologically, if I may. And the way to do that is not to just confront, but to, to uh, be cunning and to ask questions. Ask questions. Ask questions that, that make them to think critically. Ask questions that make them to ask, why is it that we believe this way? Why is it that we think that this is the only way to be and the only expression to the gospel? Bring historical pieces for them to see that this is not who we really are. And, and then just say, you know, tenemos mucho de que pensar aquí. Right? Tenemos yeah. mucho de que pensar aquí. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that the Hispanic church, uh, in large part, has something significant, a treasure, to teach the American church as it relates to justice. I'm thinking specifically of those Pueblo churches, right? Those churches that are present with the community, that are seeing the suffering. I think there is a significant uh, item of education, formation for pastors of, of other ethnicities, other mestizajes, since this is the Mestizo podcast, to learn from the Latin American pastors. A few episodes ago, we had Karen Figueroa with us. Uh, she talked about what she's doing at Chet in California and Compton. She's close enough to South and Central America that you still hear in what she shared. You still hear a lot of that original presence ministry. In fact, those are words that she used, presence ministry, uh, related to what Hispanics are doing in their communities and how it's changing things as it relates to justice. And so I think I think for that kind, that type of Hispanic church, there's something beautiful that we have to introduce to others. Let me tell you a quick story. 
I was at a church in Chicago, your hometown. I'm not going to say what church or, you know, who, so that we can uh, keep people's identity. Yeah. Don't, don't put them on blast, Elizabeth. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Especially because, you know, in, in, in all the respect for them, right? So sure. I was asked to preach at this church. Uh, actually, I was asked to do a Sunday school. And I said, great, let me do immigration. And uh, the person who invited me, my friend, said, oh, my God, let's not talk about that. That's very controversial at my place, you know, among the Latinos of her church. Among the first generation Latinos of her church, that was a very controversial thing to do. And she begged me not to do that. And I said, look, I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm going to get people to really, really think about this, right? She loved me enough. She trusted me enough to say, okay, go ahead, but I'm going to be praying the whole time. You know, I'm not going to have breakfast because you're going to turn my stomach. Okay. She was just so um, nervous about the whole bit. <clears throat> and I really prayed as well because, you know, she'd given me a lot of trust and I'm saying, Holy Spirit, please, you know, take control. And what I decided to do is to use drama. Okay. And I used the story of Ruth and I um, had someone come out and be who Ruth was. She was the outsider. She was the person who had immigrated to Israel. And uh, Ruth has to come and pick uh, the field, around the field, in order to be able to um, have what she needs and what Ruth needs. I mean, what um, Naomi needs. So I had a person who I immediately was able to identify was uh, not for this whole immigration thing. And I threw a bunch of paper in, in, in the church and had this person picking up this paper in a basket. And when this person finished picking it up, I threw it back out again. I go, you got to pick it up again. And this person kept, you know, picking up and I threw it out again. And this person, right. So we kept doing this while I'm talking about the biblical passage. Right. And finally, there was a move of the spirit. And I have to say, sometimes only the move of the spirit. And this person, Emmanuel, turns around and goes, Dios mío. Yo he pecado. And he goes to a brother who was there, who is um, who, who, who is, is here alternately documented. And he goes, perdóname mi hermano. And he starts going to each one and saying, please forgive me. Please forgive me. And he starts crying. We're talking about a macho man, okay? And he's there crying. And then he says to others, whom he knows have the same understanding that he does and who have been, you know, real hard about this piece. We come with me, come. We, you also need to do this. You know, we've been wrong. We've been wrong. And I moved away. I moved out of the way. I just let the spirit move. Right. And they begin to, to do that. So we have to create what I, what I did was to create an experience that helped them to identify but here's what happened afterwards. So we finished, you know, I did, I, I, I was able to use that experience, put all the pieces together, finish my piece. My friend was able to breathe again. <clears throat> and, you know, I sat with her and then this is a storefront church and, you know, storefront churches have weird structures and architecture. And there was this huge pole in a very, you know, weird kind of a place, but the Bishop of her denomination was sitting behind the pole. But someone from behind him saw him and he was asked to come and give greetings. This bishop comes up. This is a very um, conservative denomination, very connected to uh, the conservative uh, politics and theology of their white uh, counterparts in that denomination. And the bishop stands there for 10 minutes in silence. Now, you know what 10 minutes of silence sound like in a Pentecostal church? Okay. You don't see that, bro. 
No, that's death. That's death in a Pentecostal church. And he's standing at the podium the whole time, looking down. And finally, he says, I have a confession to make. So you know what everybody's thinking, right? And he says, months back, a a pastor in Tennessee called me and told me that ICE had surrounded his church and that they were afraid to leave the church. And I told him to stand there, to stay in the church, to be good Pentecostals, to have a vigilia. And I called other pastors and we all came and we surrounded ICE. And we brought supplies to them in case they needed to be in there for a long time. Uh, We brought food, we brought sleeping mats for the kids, you know, we brought all that stuff. And we were there having this uh, standoff with ICE. So you have the church surrounded by ICE, surrounded by these other pastors who kept coming from different states, mind you, not only from Tennessee, they came from Alabama, they came from all over. And he says, finally, at almost four o'clock in the morning, ICE leaves. I uh, ordered some brothers to follow them to make sure that they had really left and that it wasn't that they were going to return. When I got texts back telling me that they had really left, we got everybody out of the church and we, you know, made sure that they were safe and, you know, we escorted them and everything else. He says, and after that, I saw in my city that there were some people who were some uh, clergy persons who were going to Washington, D.C. He said, not only were they clergy persons, not, not only did I go with them to Washington, D.C., lo cual me está prohibido por la denominación. Okay? He's prohibited from taking any kind of religious action. He said, but they weren't all Christian. They were Muslims. They were Jews. They were uh, people from a lot of other churches that I hadn't really heard of because, you know, I'm so, I'm so uh, protected here. So he says, and I went with all of them. Toda esta gente que nosotros llamamos pecadores. Yo estaba en ese atrio de impiedad. Notice how he said this. I'm, I'm doing a prohibited thing. And I felt that I was doing the will of God. I felt that I needed to be there as the bishop of this church that includes so many brothers and sisters that find themselves in this situation that I needed to be there. He says, so that's my confession. He says, and it wasn't until today, listening to this Bible study, that I had the language to create my theology for why I did what I did. Bueno, mi gente, that's the end of another classic episode of the Mestizo Podcast. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, leave us a review, and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website following the link in the show notes. Or call 312-725-2995. Translation, 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, and question, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. Bueno, Tato, that's it. Bendiciones.